Well, good morning, Springbrook. Welcome, welcome in for worship on this cold day. Illinois finally caught up to the fact that it's supposed to be winter, but it happened like overnight. Did that like throw anybody off at all? My goodness. I'm glad that you guys came out this morning. We're excited to spend time together just coming before the Lord in worship today. We're expectant of him to do mighty, mighty things in our midst. So thank you for being with us. If you're joining us online at our 9 o'clock service, we have online hosts who are available for you all throughout the service. They would love to answer your questions about Springbrook, about what you're hearing in the message throughout the service, and they would love to pray with you. So if you want to go into a one-on-one private chat with one of our hosts, there's a request prayer button that you can click on, and they would be delighted just to spend some time in prayer with you. Wherever you are today, whatever it is that you are going through Um, We want you to feel connected to what God's doing in this community. So thanks for joining us, and I encourage you to participate throughout the service as you feel led. I'd love to invite you all now to stand as you are able, in body or in spirit, for our call to worship, which comes from Luke 17. Jesus is being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's worship together this morning. Come set your rule and reign in our hearts again. Increase in us, we pray. Unveil why we're made Come set our hearts ablaze with hope Like wildfire in our very souls Holy Spirit, come invade us now We are your church We need your power in us Yeah. 
Our scripture reading today comes from Psalm 86. And the psalmist writes this. He says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of of Sheol. Throughout this series and in a lot of our messages this year, we've talked about the idea that belief is not just something that we assent to in our intellect, but belief is something that we live out in our lives, that we embody with our whole selves. So we're going to sing a song this morning that we've sung a lot of times, and we say over and over that this is what I believe. And so my challenge for us this morning is to ask, if that were true, how would I live? If every line in this song that says, I believe in this, I believe in God our Father, I believe in the resurrection, if that were really true, how would we be walking that out? Can we invite God, can we invite the Holy Spirit this morning to unite our hearts that we might actually walk in his truth, not just singing it, not just saying it, but believing it with our whole selves. Let's worship. Let's continue in song together this morning. God. 
together. Father, we thank you that you are a God of mercy. We thank you that your word promises us your mercies are new every morning. And we need them new every morning. Because even while we have this hope of your kingdom, we live in the already and the not yet. You have already won, but we have not yet been perfected. We have not yet come out of this world of sin and brokenness. And so in this in-between space, you meet us day after day in your mercy. And we do confess to you the ways we have failed. We have not walked in your truth fully. I'm sure even already this morning we have all made a misstep. And so we thank you and we fall once again on your mercy and your grace. And we thank you for the miracle that it is that in Christ you see us as holy and perfected, chosen and beloved. I pray for each heart in this room. I pray for each person worshiping online wherever they are today. For whatever mistakes we have made or we are allowing shame or condemnation to have the final word, will you speak grace and forgiveness in Jesus? Will you speak freedom, Holy Spirit, in this moment? Speak freedom over every heart. We pray as the psalmist did, that you would teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Will you unite our hearts so that we can know you, that we can worship you with all of ourselves, with all of our lives. You deserve it all. You deserve everything we can possibly give you and so, so, so much more. We rely on you, Holy Spirit. We need you. We need you every day, every breath. We need you now as we open your word to help us be receptive. Will you remove distractions? Will you remove uh, the anxieties, maybe the pride or the sin in our hearts that might prevent us from receiving what you have for us today? Because you have something good. No one's here by accident. You have something of yourself to offer us today. So will you help us to receive it? Help us to see you and hear you and receive you this morning, we pray. All of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Springbrook family and friends. My name is Rebecca Suarez, and it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you here this morning. Whether you're here in person or online, I ask that you would go ahead and take a moment to do our connection card. Here in person, we've got one in each row online. If you click on the uh, top right, you'll find that as well. Um, and also, if you're online, feel free to um, contact any of our online hosts or work with our prayer team um, if that's where you're at. All right, so let's take a look at what's going on in our Springbrook community. Ladies, on December 10th from 1 to 3.30, we are going to gather here. Um, and have some lovely tea time. We're going to um, just grow closer in our faith and gather together and just share stories um, for $20. 
you can attend. You can go ahead and visit uh, springbrook.org slash Christmas tea to learn more and to register. There will be a catered lunch as well. And one thing I would like to note, um, if you have a favorite saucer and uh, teacup, feel free to bring that. We're going to share stories about what those might mean to us. So that'll be kind of a, a neat moment as well. Also, one week from today, baskets are due for our Thanksgiving drive. If you are interested in either donating monetarily or by putting together a basket, please know that that needs to be turned in next week. If you want to register or find out more, you can go to springbrook.org baskets for that. And so just go ahead and sit back. Pastor Matt will be out in a moment. <laughs> I'm thrilled you can hear me, because as I walked out here, I thought, did I turn my microphone on? And I did. And so it's a good morning already. <sighs> no problem so far. Well, hello, everyone. I hope you are having a good morning. I hope you are enjoying. It snowed yesterday. Um, just like a little bit, but enough to where I went, huh, that counts. Yay. Um, that's, I don't know, different people feel differently. We're going to talk about being thankful next week, but this week, we are in the second to last week of our Above series. Um, and, and if you're following along, um, last week I mentioned that last week and this week would be tied together. And of course, the whole series is kind of tied together, but last week's title was In Word or Deed, and this week's title was In Word or Deed, Part 2. If you have a book, you'll notice that there's no part two, and you might wonder, is that a typo? To which I will say, it's a happy accident. Um, because the two weeks, one was supposed to be in word or deed, one was supposed to be in word and deed. Because this week, we are going to read, for the first time, we're going to be in the actual letter to Philemon. This above series has been going through Colossians and Philemon, which were two letters that were, while Paul was in prison, he wrote these letters and he sent them through a messenger named Tychicus, who was a fellow gospel worker with Paul, and another man accompanied Tychicus, who was a former slave named Onesimus. And Onesimus was a former slave of a man named Philemon, who was the head of the house church in Colossae. And so as we read the letter to Philemon today, the letter we are talking about today is being delivered by a co-worker of Paul and a former slave who ran away. And this slave who ran away would have been subject to a lot of, like he could have been killed for it, that would have been an extreme, but he definitely could have been imprisoned. He could have been beaten. He could have been made a slave of the worst caliber over this. And yet Paul told him, I want you to go back to Colossae, to Philemon, to the man that you have a debt against because you ran from him. 
And today we're going to look at why. And I, as we start, I want to tell you, I think today is a case study of everything that we have seen laid out in the letter of Colossians. I think the reason these two letters come together is very important for us to remember. Um, I'm not going to do this in fast order, but if you weren't here last week, I, went, I kind of flew through all the different things. But this week, I'm just going to remind us of this. But um, the big idea of Colossians is a picture of the authority of Christ as the head and us underneath him as citizens in the body, as citizens in the kingdom where he reigns, and he reigns above all in every way. He is above every throne, dominion, ruler, authority. And because of the work of God in making us citizens, we were citizens of the kingdom of darkness. God made us citizens in the kingdom where Christ reigns. Because of the work Christ has done in us, we are now able to stand before him if we truly believe, as we talked about earlier. We are called by Paul to not return to the old kingdom. Don't return to the old way of life. Put off that old way of life. Put that old way of life to death and put on a new way of life. And last week we ended talking about refusing cultural values and serving the Lord Christ instead. And I'm going to give a quick, quick, quick reminder of last week. Last week, we talked about this man, Aristotle, who would have wrote a lot of the philosophy that would have pervaded Greek and Roman thinking about a household. And in the household that Paul is writing to, there would have been a... This isn't a good sign, because I think maybe I formatted things wrong, but we're going to find out. Um, and that's my fault, because I gave it to him late. Um, but uh, there was a paterfamilias who was the head of each household. And he was above all in the household. He was the master, father, and husband. And Aristotle talked about this person as being divinely equipped to rule. They were over and above everyone in their household. And then there was a wife to the paterfamilias who had less authority in the house but was still seen pretty high up there. But women were just seen as less. They had a lesser soul. Then we had offspring, which were children, but the language of children was like, I'm in my mid, I'm 36, my dad is in his 60s, I would still be called his child by a Roman cultural view, but I would be seen in a Roman cultural view as underdeveloped. But I would be an authority that someday, when my dad finally passed away or handed off and made me the paterfamilias, I would then become a developed authority, entirely based on what he said. And then there were servants, which was everyone else in a household. And it's important to note that most people would never become the paterfamilias. It wasn't each household because they lived in a more communal way. It was likely that many of the servants would bond themselves or would become slaves to a household, and then they would live, and if they got married, they and their wives would be slaves beneath, and they would live beneath this authority. And in Philemon and in Colossians, this is something Paul is talking about a lot, and he is talking about how this way of thinking that every Roman would have agreed, every wife would have thought, I'm lesser than my paterfamilias. Every offspring would have waited. They might have been angry and wanted to be that sooner and been wondering why they haven't died yet, but they would have accepted that this was a divine thing or whatever, that there was a person above them, and all the servants would have agreed they were a tool, a lesser being than the paterfamilias. And, and that's what we talked about last week and how Paul upends that when he says to the masters of the slaves, he says, masters, treat your servants justly and fairly because you 
also have a master in heaven. What he is saying there is you're also a slave. You're on equal footing. What Paul says, and we talked about this last week, but this is, I'm reviewing in case you missed. Um, believers are all equal under the headship of Christ. In Colossians 3, 11, um, Paul says, um, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. And then he goes on to dismantle the old way of thinking. And he tells the Colossians in this letter they need to refuse cultural values and they need to serve the Lord Christ. Last week, we talked about the picture of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and how those are cultural values that we assume are good and how the Bible says no. And I don't have time to talk about that much now. We'll get there at the end. But I want to tell you, if you missed last week and you're wondering, take some time to listen because If we subject ourselves to cultural values and the values of the world, we are missing that Christ is above all things and before all things. He is the image of the invisible God. He is above every ruler and throne and dominion and authority. If we miss that, we're not listening to the gospel as it is proclaimed in Scripture. So this week, we are going to remember that we're having a conversation about a household structure in ancient Rome that was very common, that everyone would have agreed to, that everyone would have known. We're going to remember that, and we're also going to remember that Paul and his goal in the whole picture of Colossians is giving a new picture where Christ is the head, he is the only paterfamilias, and all who serve him are under him, and there is a new family where there is no longer Gentile or Greek or Jew Greek Jew, or slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. I'm going to invite you right now to open up your Bibles if you have them to Philemon. Um, It comes after Titus. It comes right before Hebrews. It only takes up a page in your Bible if you've got one. It's very small, and if you look for it and you read P-H-I-L in your app and click it, it's wrong. It's P-H-M because Philippians is there. So this is a very small letter. Um, And I'm going to read you this, and after I read it, we're really going to dig in. But as we read it, we need to remember one thing. Philemon is a paterfamilias. The church is meeting in his house. He is an authority that would have been unquestioned in the way things operated in the early church because of Greek and Roman assumed values. And Paul is writing this letter and delivering this letter alongside Colossians by a man named Tychicus, and a former slave of Philemon who ran away named Onesimus, who was certainly in the debt of Philemon because of the wrong he had done. So let's read. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, 
Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. <laughs> You'll get that later. Um, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit <laughs> from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that as Paul sat in prison, as he heard about Philemon from Epaphras, a fellow worker in your name in prison, and from Onesimus, a runaway slave who became a follower of you while serving Paul in prison. We thank you that you used that situation to bring about this passage we thank you that this letter gives us a picture of what it looks like to carry out the gospel regardless of what it will do to cultural values and norms. Father, we pray as we, I thank you that we can pray, Lord, have mercy, that we can sing, Lord, have mercy, as we sang moments ago, that we can recognize where we have submitted ourselves to values of this world and that we can respond and repent of it. I pray as we study this passage, we would not leave it in the abstract and not just think of a master fleeing a slave 2,000 years ago, but that we would recognize what you are calling us to do as citizens in your kingdom. I pray for all of us here and for anyone who does not know you as Lord, for anyone who is not a citizen in the kingdom where your son reigns, I pray that today your spirit would be moving in them and in all of us that all of us might have fellowship together in truth, that we might share in the faith together, and that we might glorify your name in a way that the world just can't understand. I pray these would be your words, that you'd be speaking through me, and I pray for all of us that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the letter begins, 
Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. And right away we have to pause. Only twice in Paul's writing does he begin a letter, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. The other letter is a letter to the Philippians, which is a very positive letter. In every other letter, Paul focuses and asserts his authority in the introduction. And why does this matter? Well, we just talked about how the letter to the Colossians is a letter about authority. And here, if Paul wanted to assert his authority into this conversation, he would not say a prisoner. He would not say a prisoner. He would say an apostle. And so already there's a surprise. Already there's something that we have to account for. And we'll get there. He also is laying it on thick that he's a prisoner, as we will see as we keep reading. And Timothy, our brother, alongside him. Oh, shoot. I shouldn't look at that. Sorry, everybody. Um, So Paul is a prisoner, and Timothy, our brother. And then it talks about who the letter is to. And it says, um, Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. um, And Philemon here, this is important. Um, When it says our beloved fellow worker, it it's the title given, and then we see Aphia, our sister, and then we see Archippus, our fellow soldier, and then we see the church in their house. And why this is important is because we call this letter Philemon. We don't call it Philemon, Aphia, Archippus, and the church in their house. The letter's really just written to this guy, but if there is no longer Greek or Jew or slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, and if you're all bondservants and Christ is the head then no longer is a matter for Philemon simply a matter for Philemon. It's now a matter for all in the church because Onesimus is called in Colossians a beloved brother returning. We'll look at that next week. But so Philemon is not just a Philemon, even though most of the address is just a Philemon. By including this, Paul is assuring that everyone will hear this letter. Now, we don't know much about anyone except Philemon, Um, Aphia throughout church history has been assumed to be the wife of Philemon. Other people argue she's a prominent female leader. In my head, I think she's the wife. That's me. Um, I don't think there's enough evidence to move me away from that. But I mention both because it's not clear. Archippus, some people think, is the son of Philemon and Aphia, which would make paterfamilias, wife, son, and then kind of servants. And we'll talk about that in a second. But, but it may not be. He could also just be a ministry worker in the house. We are not told, and I say pastor in quotations because the way we talk about pastor in our modern sense versus what they would have meant back then is very different. Um, but, but he was possibly a church leader. But the point is these three would represent the most common authorities and Philemon at the top of these authorities that would have been in the church. And finally, the church in the house. And this would have been the rest of the body of Christ at Colossae. And remember, we talked about last week how the Roman way of thinking, all of the people meeting in Philemon's house would have looked to him as greater than themselves. Whoever Archippus was, if he had that same value, would have done the same. And Aphia, Philemon would have been sitting alone at the top. But Paul doesn't just address it to Philemon, he addresses it to everyone on the list. He goes on, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Now we need to address a few things here. The first thing we need to address is 
Philemon 5 um, is a very weirdly worded verse, and there are arguments about how it should be read. The ESV translate it, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus, and for all the saints. And someone could read this and say, I hear of your love and the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus, and I hear of your love for all the saints. Or they could hear it as your faith for all the saints. And it's because the language there is vague, but we need to understand a few things here. The first thing we need to understand is when the Bible says the word the saints, it is the word the holy ones, and it is a word used for all the believers. It is not a word for venerated people. The Bible does not mention the veneration of saints. That's not a biblical concept. This is important because if we don't talk about this now, someone might think, oh, the saints, the, the people that we pray to. The Bible tells us pray to God, pray to Christ. It doesn't point us to that. The other thing that happens here is when you look at other translations, it's pretty common for it to say, because I hear of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. The Greek could go either way. I feel very comfortable with this translation. And again, we're not talking about your faith in the saints in any capacity that we would be talking about what a Catholic person would say concerning saints. We are talking about holy believers, any believers. When Paul uses this language at the start of the letter to the Colossians, he calls the Colossians all saints. So we have to remember Paul is not using the language in the way that we might think of it now. Saints was a term for believers, whether Jew or Gentile, which by the way, there is no longer Jew nor Gentile. There is no longer slave or free, but Christ is all and in all, and he is the head and we are his body. So I now have Philemon 4 in the ESV, Philemon 5 in the net, and Philemon 6 in the ESV. And now we need to look at another weird thing in this passage. Paul says, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That word sharing, when we read this, you might think the sharing of your faith is evangelism and sharing your faith with others. In the Greek, what is here is not a verb, it's a noun. And the noun is koinonia, which means fellowship, or partnership, or participation. If you have read books or any resources on the way the church is supposed to operate, the word koinonia comes up very often. And the word koinonia does not mean you, you just share it together. It means you have a fellowship, a partnership. It's a mutual thing. The word fellowship in the Bible is not a word of we got together and we had a meal. Uh, uh, we didn't have a potluck. It's not tied to the idea of we just got together and hung out. Fellowship is we participated in the joys of Christ together. We live together in a shared faith that we have together, that we talk about, that we live together. It is a lived community value. And so when we read this, I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become, more effect, become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. This koinonia idea is an idea that for the church, for Archippus, for Aphia, and for Philemon, that they would have a partnership that extends through their faith and that they would have this together for the sake of Christ. We need to recognize this because it's a starting point that he's going to build on. In fact, the key verse idea at the end of this is going to tie into fellowship. 
He goes on to say, For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Now again, saints, believers, have been refreshed through you. Hearts here, it literally means inward parts or bowels, which makes me giggle, um, but, but it's to your core, to your core, to the, to the core of the saints, they've been refreshed. And this hearts have been refreshed idea is also going to be a key idea at the end of this passage. So at this point, Paul is done with his introduction, and he's about to make his appeal. The letter to Philemon is an appeal that Philemon would respond in a very specific way to Onesimus, a returned runaway slave, returning of his own free will, now a believer. And so Paul says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I'm bold enough to tell you what to do, to use my authority to say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm bold enough to do that, but instead I've called myself a prisoner. Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, to tell you what to do, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. He's laying that on thick. Uh, This is important. And and another thing, remember, we're talking about paterfamilias here and about authority. My child, whose father I became. If we're going to talk households, now we've got kind of a, is he a servant? Is he a son? We don't know, but we do know that Paul is not going to use his boldness in Christ to command Philemon, even though he mentions it. (laughs) I appeal to you for my child. We read this before, but it's important to keep it here. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless. Somebody laughed. Do you know the joke? Oh, you do. Good. One person... In Greek, useless and useful, useful would be Onesimus. Onesimus, the name, literally means useful. Paul, who has just established himself as a father, is making a dad joke. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. It's a a chuckle. You know what? If I could read Greek out loud, I'd do it, and then you guys would be like, this didn't help. Um, but I think it's funny. Um, He then says, I am sending him back to you. I'm sending my child who was useless but now is useful. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart to you who have refreshed the hearts of saints. I am sending my heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. I'm not talking as an apostle. I'm talking as a prisoner for Christ. I'm not speaking in boldness what I could command you to do. I'm not forcing you. I'm not doing things without your consent that then you couldn't be mad about. If word had gotten back to Philemon that his runaway slave was now serving Paul in prison, 
I don't think Philemon would have said, let's send for him, right? I, I hope that would not be what happens. But the point here, the point here is Paul is saying, I don't want there to be any question. I want this to be something between you and him. For this, perhaps, this is Paul using divine language. For, for perhaps he ran away, and why he was parted from you was so that you might have him back forever. Forever, not just in this life, but forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, you, paterfamilias, father, head, master, can now have Onesimus as a brother. And that is radical language, as a beloved brother. And he is a beloved brother to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord, a brother in truth today and for all eternity, is what is happening here. Paul goes on, so if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. And your partner here, Paul is, saying, Paul is talking to a paterfamilias. And saying, if we're equals, if we're partners, and how do I know he's saying equals and partners? Because it says partners in English, but underneath that is koinonos, which means companion, partner. It's language of fellowship. It's language of being tied together, working towards a common goal. And Paul is saying, if you consider me your partner, if we are in the gospel together, receive Onesimus, your former slave who ran away, as you would receive me, your partner, as a brother. If he has wronged you at all, he has. If he owes you anything, he does. Charge that to my Paul's account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I, Paul, sitting in prison, a prisoner for the Lord, a prisoner for the gospel, invite you to say, I owe you, not Onesimus, because if we are partners in the gospel, receive him as you would receive me. I will repay whatever he owes. And then Paul lays it on thicker than he's laid it on so far. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. What Paul is saying here is debated. But what he is definitely saying is the fact that you are a citizen in the kingdom of heaven came about from my ministry to the Gentiles. He might be saying at some point he met Philemon and told Philemon the gospel, and Philemon responded. That's one possibility. He's never been to Colossae, but perhaps they met. He might be saying, hey, I'm the one who trained up Epaphras, who planted the church in your city, in your house, who led you to Christ. What Paul is saying here in no uneven terms is, if I wanted to, I could express right now that I am your paterfamilias in Christ, but that no longer exists. We're both partners. We both have fellowship in Christ, and that is the value upon which we should base our relationship and on which you should base your relationship with Onesimus, who fled you as a runaway slave and is returning to you as a brother in Christ. Paul, Paul saying this in our modern language is like, okay, he's being a jerk right now. But in their rhetoric society, mentioning something like this would add it to the equation, but would say, but I'm not going to mention that. That was a common practice in their day. Paul is not here manipulating. He's mentioning, I could manipulate. 
I could express that authority because this is what, this is what their culture did. If you were above someone, you told them what they, to do, and they did it, and they accepted that way of living. Not perfectly, but it was so ingrained in them to be communal and to have heads and to work under the heads that they would not have thought the way we think in our individualistic culture. And here Paul says, I could say this, but I won't. And then he says, yes, brother, I want some benefit which is uh, onominion, which sounds a lot like onesimus. It's another dad joke. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I am sending you my very heart. Refresh it. Don't leave this picture with him owing you, him wronging you, but reject all of that. I think the reason Paul mentions prison so much in this letter is that a logical conclusion for Philemon when he got his runaway slave back could have been sending him to prison. And everyone in that day was sorrowful. I I could be wrong in this, but everyone that day was sorrowful that Paul was in prison. They would have hoped for Paul to visit them, but he didn't. They, like Paul going into prison was something where he had to keep writing letters reminding people it's for the sake of the gospel. I'm still preaching the good news. He had to remind his followers to stay faithful. And Paul here is saying, are you really going to put him in the place I am when he's your brother? Because do you want me here? If you don't want me here, why would you receive him and place him in the same place? Receive him as you would me. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. It's a bold, bold statement to say, I want you to receive him like you would receive me and more. There are debates left and, this is your left, right? Yeah, left and right about whether or not the Bible is okay with slavery, specifically the New Testament. In the last year, as me and uh, Caleb Brandt and Brandon Cassio were prepping this sermon series, I was fascinated. I read so many nerdy things, and one of the things I came away with was that one of the biggest reasons that slavery was not explicitly forbidden in Scripture in the New Testament was that most churches were made up of slaves. And Paul is not telling slaves to go rise up against your master's. But in this one instance where we are sure Paul is talking to a master of a household about a slave underneath him, Paul makes very clear, receive him as a brother, which means not as a slave any longer. Do more than what I am saying. I I wholeheartedly believe that the New Testament writers knew that slavery was wrong. I think they were against it. I think the problem is, is in the society in which they lived, Philemon coming back, or uh, Onesimus coming back to Philemon would have brought with it many problems. One problem that would have came out of this situation is that for Onesimus to have a job, he would have to have some type of interaction with a head of a household. So Paul sending him back to stay there, to be with Philemon as a brother and no longer a slave, is still him saying, I want him to work in your household. I want him to be a part of what you're doing, but no longer as a slave. That upends an entire Roman value where instead of the household being about one person, it now becomes about a collective. 
it, it upends so many things with that that we don't even have a framework for it. Because we all have the opportunity to have our own, or most of us have the opportunity to have our own homes and to have freedom. I, we have cars, we have ways to get around, we have so many opportunities that just were not available to the average person in ancient Rome. And so when Paul is saying this, he's not just saying, I want you to free him. He's saying, and I want you to have partnership with him. I want him to do ministry with you. I, I want him to be a part of your church. And this would have caused many problems, as we'll see in a minute. But before we talk about that, one last thing. Paul says, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Paul is still hopeful he will see them. He says, think about how you would receive me. Receive him in that way. I shouldn't have whispered that. Receive him in that way. Um, Epaphras, the guy who planted your church, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. Epaphras read this letter. Um, And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you, or be with your spirit. As we come to the end of this letter, Paul has expertly waged war on Roman cultural values. And the question we need to start from, because remember, this is a case study. What are we going to apply from this? We need to start by thinking about what Philemon and Aphia and Archippus and the house church at Philemon's home, what did they take from this? And the first thing, the outcomes of Philemon, this one is pretty pretty clear. Philemon most likely freed Onesimus. Why do I say that? Well, can you imagine going to Philemon's house and Philemon saying, hey guys, I got this letter from Paul. Do you want to read it? Check this out. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, big deal. He wrote me this. Oh, what happened to Onesimus? Oh, I had him killed. I I joke here, but seriously, this letter would not have circulated if Philemon's response was, I'm not going to do that. Now, Philemon was a master, a paterfamilias. That means he probably had other slaves. And if you're one of Philemon's other slaves, and the slave who ran away, who caused financial loss, and who operated entirely outside of being a good servant, if he got freed, I think... Philemon possibly freed his other bondservants. We don't know this, but when you think logically about next steps, if I'm another bondservant of Philemon in this moment, and I find out that all I need to do to be freed is to run away and then come back, do you you get what I'm saying? I, I think, and we're not sure about this, but what we are sure about is that even if Even if they weren't freed, we see a picture happening here of the Roman culture being upended. They were all a house church together, and Philemon was no longer a head because he was a paterfamilias. If he was a head, it was because he was a good, godly man shepherding his people who he saw as equals because there's no longer slave or free, Jew or Gentile, but Christ is all and in all. Philemon definitely angered many fellow heads, many fellow paterfamiliases, familiae. Um, How we know this is the fact that we have a copy of this letter means that this letter was spreading out. 
This letter was something that would have been spread out. The other churches read it. Um, Paul says in Colossians that the letters he wrote should be read to other churches in Laodicea, which if it's read in Laodicea, it would then be read along all the churches that are mentioned in Revelation 7 because that's a roadway that you would have followed. But um, the, the point here is that if you were a paterfamilias and you heard about this other paterfamilias that's just freeing slaves willy-nilly, and is just letting them live in his midst, and is living in a way that upends Roman values, you would be ticked. Because the fear of the lower class, or of the upper class of Roman people was that the lower class would rise up. And so you had to keep them under your control. There was a power dynamic that was being completely upended by what is happening when Onesimus does not exact vengeance and justice and retribution on this runaway slave. And so we have a problem developing where the church is going to become a stench to the people around it. Philemon, Aphia, and Archippus, we find out, were martyred during Nero's first persecution of the church around 68 AD. So we know that they remained faithful. And an outcome of their faithfulness is that when... Nero started just trying to wipe out Christians, and that's a whole different conversation, but um, the, the, the church history has it that these three, their church, there was a mob that came up to their church, and even though many fled, the three of them remained standing there, and they were killed for their faith. They were killed for something that all they would have needed to do was reject it and say, I don't buy this, but they lived it out in such a way where when the moment came, they were ready for that moment. What's interesting is that Onesimus may have been martyred alongside them, depending on if you go by Catholic or Orthodox church history, um, which, by the way, Orthodox church history is all church history up until like nine, there's a split in nine or a thousand AD, and then there's another split in 1500 AD, but, but we're, we were Catholic, and then we were Orthodox, and you just got to go back. We don't have time for that right now, but, but based on our church histories, there's two outcomes. Either Onesimus was killed alongside Philemon, or later he became a leader at the church in Ephesus, and he was killed there. He is listed as a martyr in all of the pictures we have of the life he had. There were other On- Onesimuses, so it could be this, it could be this. We are not sure But the picture we have is an outcome where what started with Colossians and Philemon, what started with the work of Epaphras, led to this outcome, and it's such an amazing thing to consider. The outcomes of Philemon, in tied to what we are talking about in Colossians, a paterfamilias put to death cultural values in his household that would have allowed him justice. A couple weeks ago, we read Colossians 3. And in Colossians 3, we read, so put to death whatever is in your nature, or whatever in your nature belongs to the earth, cultural values, assumptions, ways of living. You also lived your lives in this way at one time when you used to live among them. But now, put off all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Philemon could have done anything here, and in Roman culture, no one would have questioned it. And instead, a paterfamilias put on a heart of mercy, displayed kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and dearly beloved, clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. 
if someone happens to have a complaint against anyone else. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive others. Philemon forgave just as the Lord had forgiven him. We see a picture here of Roman value being upended. We see a picture here of someone with all the authority in the world to do whatever he wanted, flipping the script and forgiving and welcoming as a brother. And it is such a radical thing that he did that. And, and that's the picture that we have. That's the picture that we have of Philemon and of Colossians, and it's what we're called to do. Last week, we talked about how we must put to death the cultural values and assumption that place things, especially ourselves, above Christ as king. We talked last week about how we need to look at the assumed cultural values that guide us, and we need to recognize that we cannot allow those things to submit to Christ. It is not our life. It is not our liberty. It is not our pursuit of happiness. Christ is all and in all. It is his life. It is his, it's our liberty to serve him. It's, it's no longer about what we pursue. It's about what we pursue on behalf of Christ. This week, looking at it in a more explicit way, we must put on a way of living that reflects our submission to Christ as, community, uh, um, as a community partnering in kingdom values even when the outcome will be culturally repugnant. Now, that word repugnant, I'm really excited to say it out loud because the word repugnant means extremely distasteful and unacceptable. The word repugnant could also mean in conflict with or incompatible with, and I think you could use either definition in what I'm saying here. But the point is when Philemon did not exact revenge and did not exact justice, on Onesimus, that would have been repugnant in the culture in which he lived. Everyone who heard about that who was not a Christian would have been ticked. They would not have seen that as a thing of mercy. And if they did, they would probably be wondering. They would have to encounter the gospel in conversations about why Philemon did not take vengeance on Onesimus. They would have had to interact with a picture of him forgiving the way Christ forgave him. It is a declaration of the gospel taking place. If we live out the values of this book in truth, the culture in which we live cannot help but despise us or respond to us, positive or negative. Um, I have a quote, and this is, as I give you this quote, this quote is one of my favorite quotes about living out our faith but I need to say, I don't recommend this book, but I recommend this quote. This is by a guy named Brian Stone. He wrote a book called Evangelism After Christendom. It's thinking about evangelism in our modern post-truth, post-Christian society, which we're in or becoming. He says, martyrdom, which is dying for your faith, is evangel evangelistically exemplary because the martyr's faith is confirmed in practice and proved by the martyr's character in such a way that it can be taken seriously by those who encounter it, so seriously, in fact, that others are willing to put a stop to that witness. The martyr is a model evangelist because the martyr practices and inhabits the faith with such clarity and concreteness that it, can, that it can become habitable for others. The this quote, I know it's a lot of big words, but the reason I use this quote is because if I talk about it, I'm going to mention it and then I'm not going to use it. But what he is saying here 
is, and, and this is in the Bible, the word martyr does not mean dying for your faith. It means living for your faith. It means living in such a way that when people encounter you, they have to either say, Jesus is above all and before all. He is the king. Or they have to say, I need to put an end to what you are doing. I need to reject you. I need to make you less. They, they are being forced to respond to either Jesus rose from the dead and reigns, or he didn't. And they are being forced to accept what you're saying or reject you. The, the picture we are talking about this week is do you live in such a way that in your encounters with others, they are forced to agree or disagree with your faith? Do you live in such a way that your faith is made real in your interactions with others? Do you, in, in our culture, in our society, what's, what's the problem in our society? Well, the problem in our society is that we all have our own truth, right? We all have our own values. We have our individualistic way of seeing the world where my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. I think my truth is right, but I'm not going to step on your toes about it. Because that would be wrong, because if I'm pursuing my life, liberty, and happiness, then I can't prevent you from yours, even if yours is wrong. And the problem with that is if we believe in Scripture, it means we believe there is an absolute truth, and if there is an absolute truth, and if there is a way we were created to be, and if there is a God in heaven who we are called to follow and called to live for and called to model our lives after, then there is no way that we can interact with people and say, you do you. There is no way we can interact with them and say, I'm going to keep my head down. I'm not going to make waves because there is a resurrected king who reigns. And because of the work he has done in taking us from the domain of darkness and making us citizens in his kingdom, we are invited to help others see the same. We see it in the way we live, the way we live differently than those around us, in what we declare, in what we value, in the way that we do not settle for living in such a way that we just get along with those around us. Some of you are saying, well, elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about this. And, oh man, context. We don't have time for that. But the point is, at some point, if we live in such a way where we never confront anyone with the gospel, where we never live the gospel out in truth in such a way that people have to respond and respond in ways that we may not like or respond in ways that we can be thankful for and embrace them as brothers and sisters, if we do not live in that way, we are failing to see Jesus as king. We are failing to live as if there's no longer Jew nor Greek, no longer Gentile, no longer slave nor free. If we want to live as if Christ is all and in all, then we need to live in such a way where people in their encounters with us have to decide there's truth in Christ or there isn't. And it's not our job to make them decide, but it is our job to make sure they are aware that they're butting up against a picture of the gospel. Philemon did that. And in doing that, I think he sealed his fate. What Nero did probably would have happened either way. But Philemon was not a master who said, you know what? I believe the gospel, but this guy ticked me off. He was a master who said, the way I've been forgiven, I'm going to forgive others. The whole concept of the values they lived by were upended by such simple moments. And we praise the Lord for that, that we have that example. And now the question is, how do we go live that out? I can't prescribe a specific thing for any of you for this because I don't walk in your shoes each and every day. But I can say if no one ever has to respond positively or negatively to the gospel in your life, in your 168 hours, and then times that by 50, which 
Um, no, we're not going to do that right now. But, but if no one ever has to respond to the gospel in their interactions with you, I wonder, have you responded to the gospel? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you forgave us through the work on the cross, you who were above all things and before all things, you, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, provided us with a way to be a part of your kingdom. We thank you that we are able to stand before you. We thank you that we are able to present ourselves before you, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done in us and what you're doing through us. Father, we pray you would have mercy on us for walking in the midst of a culture that does not believe you are true and living in such a way where they are not confronted by the reality of your son and his reign. We pray that we would be people that point others to the greatness of your son. We pray we would be people that live in everything we do, word or deed, in the name of your son, Jesus, giving thanks to you for the work you have done in us. We pray that others who encounter us would have to just come to terms with who your son is. We pray we would do it wisely. We would not just be throwing Bibles at people or telling people, you have to believe this, but instead by our conduct, by our values, by our way of living, we would model what Philemon so perfectly models, that we would love one another and receive one another in such a way that our fellowship and our participation in the faith together points others to you. We praise you, Lord, for the work that you have done in us and through us, and we pray that we would be a part of that as we leave today. I pray for anyone here who is wondering if they've responded to the gospel, that they would not leave today without talking to me or someone else, without saying, I need to know the truth about Jesus. I pray that they would recognize they can be forgiven and that they can see the reign of your son in truth. We thank you for all that you have done. We thank you that you have made us citizens, that you have given us an inheritance, and that we will someday stand before you because of the work you've done in us and through us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's rise together one more time in body or spirit. Let's respond in song and worship to the word that we have so graciously received from the Lord this morning.
Thank you so much for worshiping here with us today. I pray now that you would go in faith and in the strength of the Holy Spirit with you to love and serve the Lord. Have a blessed week in him. We'll see you next Sunday.